Um, all right. What other prayer requests do we have this morning? We're going to continue to lift up Tim and Christopher as they are. Yeah, as they're struggling with their grief, and I imagine so, with the loss of Kathy. Who would like to pray for the Bellamy's? Okay. And India ran into Jennifer Granberry the other day at what, Michael's. Okay. Singing in there, doing well. Yeah, but we want to. Yeah, it's understandable. Who would like to pray for the Granberries today? All right, okay. And we want to continue to lift up. Uh, Nicholas, why don't you pray for uh, Reclaim and the Bible study and ministries of the church? Okay, all right. Anyone feel like they have a word from the Lord before we start praying? Lorraine. Okay. Okay, good. And, okay. Uh, I'm going off this week and uh, have been preparing okay. a week long to go. And, uh, you know, it had for a while, I have to preface this because it had always been very important to me to get to church. On yeah. Time. And then it seemed like there was. I guess it was when I was sick and things like that that I got yeah. where I wasn't here on time. And so I made this concerted effort to change my life and get back where I was coming to church. And I guess it's been six months. Yeah. Other than the day that I had a dead battery <laughs> in the church on time. And this morning... I mean, I had been preparing yesterday. I spent the entire day getting ready to go, and I carried this stuff out to the car, and I left on time. Yeah. And all these kind of things, and I got to church and went to lock my car because half my life is in yeah. the car. And my car wouldn't lock. Huh. And so I tried again. Yeah. And I went around and closed all the doors that still wouldn't lock. Okay. Anyway, I did a bunch of stuff, and then it wouldn't start. And <laughs> called on the name of the Lord, and I got inside, and I remembered the last time this happened, the Happy's car alarm jiggled everything in the car uh -huh. around. So I did that, and sure enough, Car started, the doors locked, everything like that. But I was late for church. Mm -hmm. I wasn't here for the procession. And, you know, I still felt mm -hmm. righteous. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, the parable of the foolish and the righteous. Oh, yeah. Matthew uh, 24. And I realized how easy it is mm -hmm. to fall into the unprepared. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that uh, when you're working in your own power, yeah. that uh, there are so many things that get in the 
them the way that are unexpected. Yes. And that the same thing works with your spiritual life. That uh, you can do all the right things, and that, but there's always something that can trip you up. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that you have is that name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Today also is the National Day of Prayer for uh, President Trump has asked for today to be a National Day of Prayer as well. So let's begin to intercede and seek the Lord and those who you know your request uh, or petition uh, lead us out. Hear our prayer. Hear our prayer. Yes. Yes, Lord. 
Yes. She received the sheer delight of the continued presence of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hear a prayer.
Yes. Your prayer. Yes, Lord. Yes. Seek your face, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would use this word tomorrow, this morning to enliven our faith, cause us to fall in love with you more deeply, and cause, you, cause us to trust you more completely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, hot topic. We're almost uh, about done. 
but um, it might be a topic that you might not realize was hot, but it's been hot for almost 500 years. And it's the nature of whether we're saved by faith alone or by faith and works. And the debate is between Paul and James. And what I want to do is read the verses first so you can get a feel for what looks like on the surface a contradiction. And <clears throat> then see, let's look at the Word of God and see if it is actual contradiction. And then what does the teach, <clears throat> Bible teach about how we're made right with God? <clears throat> the, word, the word we use is justification. And it's a word that Paul uses a lot in Romans and Galatians. And it means to be approved or accepted by God. So the question becomes this morning, how are we accepted or approved by God? How are we delivered in Christ and made right with him so that we can live forever in his presence? Okay? And the issue is pivots on the word faith and in the nature of what are works. Works are anything that we do as a result of, of Christ living in us. Okay? A work, a Christian work, is anything we do as a result of uh, Christ living in us. So you, you have a chance to be angry with someone, or you have the opportunity to forgive, thank you, and to um, release forgiveness, or you have a chance to be bitter. You decide to release forgiveness. That's a Christian work because you've decided in your heart, you're responding to the situation like Christ. That's a Christian work. Okay? You're doing it... Because naturally, our flesh doesn't want to forgive. Our flesh wants to be angry. Uh, our flesh wants to be resentful. But you make the decision to forgive, to release, to love, to lay down your life, to bear the debt, to suffer uh, for them. Because sin brings suffering. You're absorbing that suffering by forgiving. And you're doing that because Christ has commanded you. Christ has loved you. Christ has forgiven you. And you want to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. So you're making a choice because of why Christ lives in you. So that's a Christian work. Okay? Just a few definitions before we get started. First, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Romans three twenty-seven. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works. No, by the law of faith. So I can't boast that I got right with God out of my own performance. The only way I could get right with God was out of the principle of trusting the Lord by faith. Verse 24, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So we hold that we're made right with God because we've trusted what Christ has done for us on the cross We've received his righteousness apart from any kind of performance, any kind of right doing. It's only faith alone in Christ that makes us right with God. That's what Paul's saying right here. Okay. Works of the law are, in Paul's mind, is trying to keep rules or commands in such a way that you think, by your good performance, that makes you right with God. Paul's saying here, you can't do that. You can't boast in that. Your only choice is faith. When you look to him in faith, and out of grace he gives you his righteousness and he receives you into himself, you can't make any claims. You can't boast because this was all of him. 
He did it all. And so you can't boast in your own effort. Can't take pride. Look at me. Look how saved I am. No. I'm only saved because of Christ's righteousness. Otherwise, I'm selfish and pitiful and poor. Verse 29. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. So in other words, he saves both Jews and Gentiles by the same means. Since God is one, who, since there's not a separate God for Jews and Gentiles, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? So the same condition for the same people, different people, no matter who you are, where you're from, religious background, the same principle holds, you're saved by faith. 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So if we walk in faith and we trust in Christ, there's a heart change that comes in us. As a result, we desire to please him. We want to live obedient unto him. Okay? So the overflow of that faith will produce a righteous life, and therefore I'll desire and want and be empowered to keep the commands of God. Skip down to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, this is a reference to the Lord speaking to him. After all the stars in the sky in Genesis 15. Now to the, one who, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So it's faith, it's not works. Did Abraham do anything on that moment when he looked into the sky and the Lord told him he would have an heir? It would be nothing that he would have done, but only what God had gifted him. He was not physically able, him and Sarah, to have a child, to have Isaac. Yet God gave him grace and showed him if he would believe his descendants would be as the the stars in the sky. He looked to him in faith, and Abraham received the righteous standing before the Lord. He was accepted in God. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay. You've got to be in righteous standing to be in God's presence, right? We talked about this last week with the Ark of the Covenant. You have a holy God and a sinful person. I can't be in his presence or I'd be destroyed by his perfection, by his beauty, by his holiness. So what's the, what's the solution? There must be a solution. Someone must pay for my sin. My sin has created a debt. There's a death to be paid for my sin. The wages of sin is death. So someone has to die because of my selfishness. Okay. What Christ has chosen to do is take my place and die the death I deserve to die and bore all the judgment I deserved and bore it upon himself. So when I look to him in faith, I receive what he's done for me and I receive his righteousness and I'm placed in Christ. So I look to him in faith. I'm made in right standing with the Lord. And it's not by anything that I have done. No works, no effort, no commands. It's all of grace. We're saved by faith through grace. The Reformation is going to be celebrated next month, 500 years. And we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, to God's glory alone, told to us by Scripture alone. That's the slogan, that's the motto of the Great Reformation. Faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Okay. Now, we're going to flip. We're going to go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. 
Great little nugget of a letter. Yeah, I forget how many times he uses it in imperative tense. Imperative means to do this. You know, take this action. I think for this little letter, it's like in the hundreds. Uh, it's a strong uh, hit in the gut. This is the Christian life. This is what it will look like. Okay. Let's start verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not work, have works, it's dead. <clears throat> but if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active among his, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. He's quoting the same verse that Paul quoted from Genesis 15. You see that a person is justified by works. And not by faith alone. And in the same way, so also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> so notice that phrase in verse 24. You see that a person justified by works and not by faith alone. <clears throat> so this is real uh, sticking point. Between um, Roman Catholics and Protestants since the Reformation 500 years ago and the nature of how we're saved. Now let me take you on a little, a little uh, game here. I'm going to throw out some words and I want you to tell me whether it's a positive word or a negative word. Is it a sinful word or is it a good word that helps people? Is it a word should we seek after, or it's a word that we should reject? Okay? Pride. It's what? Rejected. So we, we, really? So if I take pride in my work, that's sinful? Okay. So if I take pride in my work, I'm a craftsman, I make furniture, and I want my furniture to look good, to be well made, and to sell well, and people appreciate it, and it be functional so other people can use it, and it won't break. It will last for years in their living room, and I take pride in my craftsmanship. Or, I could so take so much pride in my craftsmanship, I think I'm better than any other carpenter in the country, and so I look down on anybody else because nobody can make it as well as I can. Yeah. A line was crossed, wasn't it? From taking a, 
want to do something for other people that is well made so they can appreciate it to crossing a little line to where I think because of the way I make it, I'm better than everybody else. Okay? So pride has a positive connotation and has a negative connotation. How do you know? The way it's used in its context. Okay? Let's try another one. Jealous. Positive or negative? Uh, okay. <laughs> God is a jealous God according to uh, Exodus 30, uh, 24. Okay. So you have a jealousy that protects a relationship and yearns uh, for that relationship to grow and mature. And anything that would threaten that relationship, you guard against it and you feed it. You're jealous over your children. You want to make sure that no harm comes to them. You want to protect them every way. However, again, you could cross a line. You become so jealous that whatever good things that's brought their way you want for yourself and you don't like the fact that their life is going so well and so you're going to undermine them so that you might reap the benefits. So the Lord is jealous over us. He guards his relationship with us and he wants to protect us from idolatry, sinfulness. He's going to guard us very carefully. But then we can, a girl and a guy can date and there can be such jealousy, such smothering of the relationship that it keeps the relationship from growing and causes the other person to be stifled. So positive and negative, depending the context, right? Here's a harder one. Prodigal, like parable of the prodigal son. What does prodigal mean? It means to be extravagant. Okay. We normally think of it in a negative connotation because of that parable. The younger brother was extravagant in his sin, so that's why it was called King James Bible, the prodigal son story. He was extravagant. It's not a word we use a lot in everyday English anymore. But Tim Keller comes out with a book a few years ago called The Prodigal God. A lot of people got upset. Why are you saying a God is, is selfish and extremely sinful? No, it needs to be extravagant. So the way he was using the word is God is extravagant in his grace. Okay, so <clears throat> we use positive or negative. Religion. <laughs> Normally we say in church, how many times you've heard it, I don't believe in religion, I believe in a relationship with God. Okay, problem is first, uh, James 1, 26 says, and pure and undefiled religion is this, looking after the widows and the orphans. So it does have a positive aspect as well. Okay? Tradition. Tradition, negative aspect. The Pharisees were so caught up in their own rules that they overlooked the heart of uh, God's love and the purposes of God's law. But tradition, Paul uses in uh, Thessalonians, Greek word paradosis means to pass on what Christ has taught and what the apostles have taught so that you know how to properly interpret the word. And so that brings us to the word faith. Okay? It's the Greek word pistis, and in both Paul and in James, it's, being used, it's the same word. Okay? Just like jealousy would be the same word, or tradition would be the same word. Okay. But are they being used differently? Yeah. 
So you need to be a careful reader of God's Word, looking at the context. When you, I'm in class that I teach a Bible interpretation class. I teach people to read the verse in its immediate context and then the paragraphs before it and after it. And then you read out how does the letter or the book use the word in that context. And then you read further out how does the New Testament use that word in its wider context. I'll give you an example. Glory. We think of glory, we think of the manifested presence of God. What now? Want to enter into His glory? A very popular word in charismatic circles. I want. To, it's uh, you think of entering into God's presence through praise and worship and experiencing an overwhelming sense of His love and grace. Okay, and many times that's exactly the way the word is being used in worship in context, especially in the Old Testament. We come to John, though. John's using the word glory to point to the cross. This is God's glory, that he would die in our place. This is God's glory, that he would become a criminal. This is God's glory, that he would bear our sin. So it's not quite the same glory. It's not this happy glory. It's a solemn glory, overwhelming sense of what God has done on our behalf in his love for us. So you would, if you're studying the word glory, you would start in John, you kind of work out. You notice that John's a little different than the way the other books are using it. So what we have to look at is, how is Paul using the word faith? How is James using the word faith? Look with me to James chapter 1. You're still in James, hopefully. Verse 4. He's talking about all kinds of trials and the testing of our faith. In verse 4 he says, And let the steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, as you're trusting the Lord in your trials, it's producing within you more and more desire to trust Him. As you do, as you continue to be steadfast in your determination to trust Him in your trials, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, the Lord uses the trials we go through to bring us to a place where we're trusting Him wholly. As we continue to trust Him wholly, it matures us, it grows us, it helps us to know Him deeper and better, and it brings us into perfect and complete. This is a major theme in James. Okay. And this is really the theme of the book running through. The word's used seven times. And so what, do we, what does James mean by perfect? He means an integrated life. A person who believes the teachings of Jesus and consistently lives them. In other words, their beliefs is integrated with their actions. Their life is reflective of the faith they have. Okay, Let me read a little cleaner definition. Wherever it went. Perfect, or teleos, in James, means to have an integrated life. Your actions always are consistent with your values and your beliefs that you've received from Jesus. So James's concern in this letter is that do I, the things that I have accepted and believed in Christ, is it being reflected in the way I live? Okay. Or 
Am I holding to an intellectual faith and saying I hold to the set of beliefs, but my actions indicate otherwise? This book, you know, James is Jesus' half-brother, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he is saturated in Jesus' teaching. He quotes Sermon on the Mount and Matthew thoroughly in this book, and he quotes a lot from the book of Proverbs in this little letter. And he quotes from three Old Testament characters. And he talks about God's grace. He's a gracious God that gives us wisdom. So in the midst of our trials, we're looking to him, and he graciously, verse 5, if you lack wisdom, wisdom for what? Wisdom for how to live life in the midst of trials so that my Christian life will be consistent with what I believe. He will, if I ask, in verse 5, he will give generously without reproach. It will be given to him. Ask in faith with no doubting. So you're in the midst of perplexing trials. You feel overwhelmed. Maybe you're short on money. Don't know what the right ethical choice would be to, for your business decision. How to treat certain clients. What's the right thing to do? You ask the Lord for wisdom. He helps you in the midst of your trial so that you can look to him in faith and know you'll receive insight from him on how to make choices that would re- reflect the life of Christ. So this is James' concern. So for James, he's dealing with a congregation that's very intellectual and holds to a set of beliefs, but he's concerned that the beliefs are not being, being uh, applied into their lives in the outside world. He deals with how should the church treat rich and poor people. He obviously watched with his own eyes. A rich person walk into the congregation and be treated with great dignity and respect, and a poor person be mistreated and neglected. And he's rebuking them that that's not consistent with love your neighbor as yourself. That's not consistent with the Sermon on the Mount. That's not consistent with how God loves all people and shows no partiality. Okay. He obviously is, uh, has a pretty, probably pretty large group of believers in Jerusalem that he's overseeing, and he's concerned because a lot of gossip going on. He says, who can tame the tongue? Yeah. So one thing that can sink a ship. So he's concerned that what he's seeing in his congregation isn't consistent with the beliefs that they hold. So he's using faith as mental assent to a set of beliefs. And he wants to see that that faith reflects the values and beliefs that Jesus teaches. So let's look at the verses again real quick. Okay, Let's go to 2.18. Skip down to there. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So someone will say, I have faith. Yes, I believe, but another one will say, but I do believe, but this is what I do. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. These works are not attempts to get God to like you or to be approved by you. These works are the overflow of the root of faith already in someone's life. 
Okay? Someone over here saying, I believe, but there's nothing, no fruit, or nothing coming out of their life to indicate that they're a true follower of Jesus. There's a person over here who has genuine faith. They look to the Lord in righteousness. And the automatic overflow of that life operating through them will be fruitfulness. And it will change the way they act, the way they behave. Okay, the choices they make. I mean, this has been a problem, hasn't it, been in American evangelicalism, isn't it? Easy believism. You go to a, go to a meeting, be crusade, walk forward at the altar, you're declared saved or right. And then the life you live afterwards is totally inconsistent with what you declared at the altar. And yet, there are some teachers like Zane Hodges at Dallas Seminary, he has now passed away, who said, you're still saved. He even said, you could become a Hindu and still be saved. As long as you made that one profession of faith. Okay. There's some other easy believism. Hyper grace movement is real popular right now. And just beware. So from the Rob Bell kind of tradition of things. Okay. Uh, Brian Zant is another one. And then on the charismatic side, Joseph Prince, another one. It's kind of hyper grace. Where is the life to be lived? Where's the reflection of the holiness? They don't, they disregard that. Okay. So he's saying, you believe God is one. Do you believe the Shema? You believe that God is monotheistic. You believe that he's, he is who he says he is. But even the demons believe and shudder. That's a reference to Mark 1.34 when the demons called out to Jesus and said, you are the Holy One of God. They knew exactly who he was. They changed their behavior. Okay. All right. So the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Obviously, the demon's not saved just because he knows and declares who Christ is and exactly who, who he claims to be. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac in the altar? Notice he's mentioning something that happens chapters later. Faith. Abraham looked to faith. He was accredited to righteousness. Chapters later, it becomes a question. Does Abraham love the Gift more than the gift giver? Okay. Does he love the promise more than the promise maker? Has he was so desperate for a son after so many years that he's begun to love the son more than, he's, uh, uh, more than he loves the God who gave him the son miraculously? The Lord needs to know. Where is his heart at? Okay. He was willing to give up his son and sacrifice his son on an altar. Remember the famous Isaac and taking him off? It reflected, Abraham made the right decision. He surrendered his all to the Lord and was willing to give his son to the Lord and keep God as his ultimate priority. And the Lord intervened and provided the ram. But it was a test of his heart to see if the righteousness that he had received really was something that was working out in his life. Okay. So James, uh, James cites that. Says, see, don't you see that Abraham didn't just believe in a Hebrew God? 
and mentally assent to it. His actions reveal the choices that he made and the belief that he had so that his life was different and therefore he was willing to yield his son to the Lord. Very quickly. You see that faith was active among his works, verse 22, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that was said, Abraham believed God and it was counted on him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So he's going back, Genesis 15, saying, see, James is not denying what Paul is teaching, that you receive by faith God's righteousness. But what he's saying is, if you've received that faith and you have been declared righteous with Christ and you're now right with God, you mentally believe that, your life will be different. You'll make different choices. Okay? You'll have a different life. You'll have a different set of priorities. And he references Rahab as an example. Okay? Now, let's just we've got a few minutes. Let's slip back to um, Romans. So James's, con- uh, James's concern is with an intellectual congregation that believes the set of beliefs, but not necessarily has worked out in their lives. Now, what's Paul's concern? Paul's concern is that his congregation, the congregation in Rome, which he has not been there yet, but he would have heard things, and he's worried about the Jewish-Gentile rela- the Jewish-Gentile relationship. The Jews had been kicked out of Rome by one of the Caesars, and his name slips my mind right now, because they were stirring up trouble. We think that the trouble that they were stirring up was that some of them were becoming Christians and becoming what we would call today Messianic Jews. And they were sharing that in the synagogues and it was causing a ruckus within all the Jewish community. And so just to get back at them and settle issues, the Caesar just kicks them out of Rome. Now this is not in the Bible. This is from documents we, scholars have found from the time period. Okay? Now we know that they're, now the new leader is allowing them to come back. And as they're coming back, they're reintegrating back into the church. There would have been maybe two dozen house churches around Rome at this time. And each, we, from Romans 16, each one seems to have had a leader who led their home group. He addresses each one in that chapter. Okay. And so as the Jews are integrating back with the Gentiles, there's a lot of confusion, a theological confusion, as about the nature of their relationship. And Paul's saying, you're one in Christ. You're saved the same way, you look to Christ the same way, you receive his righteousness the same way. Okay? We're one in Christ. And that's the pastoral issue he's addressing. But with that comes, can come legalism. Belief that whatever I do or however I work or however I live, by that behavior I can earn right standing with God. If you don't think that's still around, I do see it all the time, almost every day. I was sharing Christ with one of the guys a few years ago who worked in appliances. And he said, well, I think I'm good enough. I'm good as most people around me, but I'm not as good as you. Okay? That was his answer to whether he thought he was in right standing with God or not. It's the human tendency 
Legalism is the first tendency our flesh goes to when we think, uh, when we uh, want to think we're as good as others, we can get into heaven by our behavior and be right with God. So this is Paul's pastoral concern. Now notice how he addresses this. We don't do this by works. This is 327. We hold that we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, verse 28. It's faith alone that makes us right with the Lord. And this faith is for good enough for Jews, it's good enough for Gentiles. It's the same way we're all getting saved the same. Whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, verse 30, we're all getting saved the same. So, but, we get saved the same, we receive righteousness the same, and we're approved by God the same. Does this mean, verse 31, that the law is overthrown? In other words, we don't have to keep up with it anymore. It's called antinomianism. Anti, nomos, means law. So no, there's no law for the Christian. No need to obey. And this is the Joseph Prince guy on these charismatic channels on cable. This is where he's going with it. My concern also is at one time, Brendan Manning was starting to go down that trail too. Okay. All right, But what does saving faith do? You're saved by not by what you've done, but what Christ has done for you on the cross. But if that heart's been changed, there's going to be an overflow of fruit. And so my life will be different. Okay. So works are a fruit of salvation, but it's not the root of salvation, is how theologians put it. My works are fruit of my salvation, but not the root or the cause of my salvation. Okay? Let's just flip over one verse to verse, uh, chapter 6. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 8, Romans. Romans 8, 4. Paul's talking about why Christ was came. While we receive no condemnation in Christ, that's just not a psychological thing. That means we're declared righteous in the court of law and there's no condemnation over our heads as a result of our sin. And he sends his son, verse 3, weakened by the flesh, doing something the law could not do. Because the law, you can't keep the law in your flesh because of your weakened flesh and your sinful state, you're going to continually fail. That's what he's saying in verse 3. But at the end of verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned in the sin, uh, sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Christ died for us. He transformed us. Our flesh can't keep the law, but now that, the Spirit, that Jesus has transformed us and changed our hearts, he's empowering us so that now we can fulfill God's purposes. We can now be holy. We can now meet the righteous requirements of the law, not by the power of the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us and empowers us to be able to live the Christian life. So you see the difference. James and Paul are not contradicting each other. They're using faith in a different way. They're addressing two different pastoral needs, but they're really saying the same thing. They're both saying we're saved by faith. They're both saying that if our hearts are changed, our lives will be different. 
If our lives are different, we'll, we'll respond and want to obey God's law. We will want to walk in holiness. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, that the Christian life is faith working itself out through love. That's no different than what James is saying. If they're using the word two different ways, the word faith. Okay. Hopefully that may help you, especially if you have some friends or from other traditions that hold to different views. They'll help you understanding. Okay. We hold to faith alone. In Christ alone. By grace alone. That we are saved. But in that faith, our hearts are going to be changed. And our faith's not going to stand alone. Because the fruit of that faith is good works. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. That as we come to know it, your spirit enlightens our minds and our spirits. That, Lord, we can see your word is consistent and true. Lord, I pray that this morning that the faith we profess will be consistent in our lives. In Jesus' most blessed name, amen. Amen. Uh, Josh, why don't we put up the Nicene Creed real quick? We haven't said it in a while. Or Timothy, whoever is in charge this morning. <laughs> and let's stand. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven.